So jobs, the economy, and education, you know, if you're not talking about that with Latino voters, you're, you're losing. Carlos Cabello knows a thing or two about winning Latino voters. He's a former two-term moderate Republican congressman from one of the last remaining swing districts in the U.S. House, including parts of Miami and the Florida Keys. We'll be talking Hispanic swing districts and swing voters with Carlos Cabello and Dr. Sharon Navarro, a political scientist at UT San Antonio. One third of Latinos aren't born in the United States, which means that there is no party loyalty ingrained in them yet. So they are quite persuadable. And we'll speak again with Dr. Henry Cisneros, former four-term mayor of San Antonio and Clinton cabinet secretary. So for a lot of reasons, Latinos were sort of saying, well, wait a minute, you know, if this is what I believe, it's out of sync with my traditional democratic leaning. I have to at least consider the Republican Party. And I think we're seeing that. And I expect we're probably going to see more of it. I'm Robert Pease, and this is The Purple Principle, a podcast about the perils of polarization in this perilously polarizing primary season. There was so much in the news about the unexpected shift of some Hispanic voters in the 2020 election. President Trump. Trump increased his share of the Latino vote by around eight percentage points between 2016 and 2020. It was the biggest swing of any racial or ethnic group. And it's being reported again in this 2022 midterm election. This is very much a story for this midterm. If that Hispanic vote comes up for grabs between the two parties, it's a huge shift potentially in American politics. A lot of factors to weigh with regard to Hispanic voters, including country of origin or descent. Sure, there's common language and cultural factors at work, but Mexico is clearly not Venezuela, which in turn is not Argentina, which is very much not at all Cuba when it comes to political culture, exposure, and the effect on recent American immigrants from those nations. Let's start off with Carlos Cabello himself, a second-generation Cuban-American, with regard to changes in that South Florida community, which echo similar trends from around the nation. So for a long time, Cuban-Americans had started distributing more normally on the political curve. So if you go back to the 80s and 90s, Cuban-Americans were very reliable Republican voters. Some people believe George W. Bush got as much as 80% of the Cuban-American vote in the 2000 election and then very high numbers again in 2004. But yeah, after that, younger Cuban-Americans started skewing a little more towards the center and to the left. But uh, we did see a big snapback uh, in 2020 with uh, the Cuban-American community and other Hispanic communities here in South Florida supporting Donald Trump uh, pretty heavily. And a lot of people attribute that to the Democratic Party's shift to the left and the prominence of figures like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, leaders who uh, identify with socialist movements, uh, which uh, is a bad word here in South Florida for a lot of Latino communities. Yeah, and that's understandable given that context there. So thank you for that. But what about the trends with younger Latinos who are maybe becoming more active voters as they get older? It really does look for now that Republicans are gaining a lot. Uh, regrettably, our, our politics have become a, a massive culture war here in, in recent years. 
And uh, it certainly does seem that a lot of Hispanic families, especially uh, Latino men, are rejecting the progressivism that some on the left are aggressively trying to introduce uh, into our culture. So it's uh, it's about issues, and certainly uh, you can understand how a lot of uh, Hispanics, you know, more recent immigrants, really value the opportunity to work during the pandemic. I found that a lot of immigrant families were frustrated with the lockdowns, unable to send their children to school, unable to get ahead at their jobs. So there is certainly there's um there's an issue advantage for Republicans on some issues, but I'd say more than anything, it's the culture wars for now that are attracting a lot of uh, Latino families to the Republican Party. Yes, but what about the idea many Latinos aren't comfortable with either major party? If, for example, they're both pro-life and pro-social justice, do you have the feeling in your district and the wider community, many Hispanics are kind of natural independents? I think that's right. Obviously, there are exceptions, but more recent immigrants don't have those generational commitments to to political parties. So they're kind of up for grabs. And certainly Latino immigrants are, you know, in terms of large groups, the most recent immigrants uh, to the United States. I think Latino voters need to be met uh, where they're at. What do they care about? Obviously, if, if you've come to this country recently in the last 10, 20, 30 years, you probably came here because you wanted to work. You wanted to get a good job so that you could make money for your family and then get your kids a good education. Uh, and I think Republicans have been smart at trying to meet uh, Hispanics where they're at. Democrats in more recent years have tried to meet Hispanics where they would like them to be. So, uh, oh, you're Hispanic? Well, the number one issue for you must be immigration because, you know, it's an important issue and uh, it's a social justice issue. And um, this is what you need to care about. Well, sure, a lot. I care about immigration. A lot of uh, Latinos do. But, um, you know, it's understandable that for probably most Latinos, taking care of their families, making sure they have good jobs you know, housing, education are probably more important to them than immigration. I'll give you another example. It's, again, more cultural, but progressives in this country have determined that uh, the Spanish language is insufficient and lacking and actually insensitive. So we can no longer call people Latinos or Latinas, even though, of course, in Spanish, uh, when you say Latino, it refers to everyone. It is not gender specific. But progressives think that's wrong and that uh, Hispanics or Latinos should refer to themselves as Latinx. You know, only 3% of uh, Hispanics in our country identify as Latinx, and most people don't even know what the hell that is. So, you know, I don't, uh, I actually don't give advice to either political party these days, but if uh, if Democrats want some advice on uh, you know reversing some of these losses they've seen recently in Hispanic communities, I'd say be more respectful, meet people where they're at, don't lecture people, don't tell me you know what I have to call myself. That's a great point. 
We'd also like to get your comment on a clip from a previous guest, Dr. Jeff Cabaservice. He's the author of one of the best histories of the modern Republican Party, Rule and Ruin. Here's how he explains some of the shift in Hispanic voters just after the 2020 election. But, you know, the hypothesis certainly is that in, let's say, majority-minority Hispanic districts like those in South Florida, that tying Democrats to the self-professed socialism of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders was, in fact, important in moving a lot of voters there. Because these are people who either fled from socialist regimes in Central and South America, or they have parents or other relatives who did that. And maybe even the tearing down of statues across the country made them think of the kind of socialist revolutions that they had seen or at least had heard about. Again, that's the historian, Dr. Jeff Cabaservice. We're curious if you felt or observed or discussed that kind of association in your district or throughout Florida in general, which has certainly been an important swing state in the past, and maybe it could be again. He's exactly right. Look, people come to this country, from Latin America at least, I can't tell you about everyone else because I'm not an expert, but I, you know, my family came from Latin America and most of my friends' families came from Latin America. So I, uh, I'll bestow expert status on myself for this. People came to this country and come to this country seeking stability, Okay. They are coming from places that have witnessed political revolutions, most from the left. They are coming from places where there's no law and order, where gangs uh, run the streets. I mean, this is the case in Central America for sure. So imagine you come here and you're living in this country and you've been here for 10 years and you've been able to you know, rebuild your life. And then someone comes and starts introducing, and look, I'm not, we need to be fair, okay? No one, AOC, Bernie Sanders, they're not calling for a socialist dictatorship or anything like that here, but they express sympathies for these governments. They speak at least forgivingly about Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela and, um, the Castros in Cuba and and uh, Ortega in Nicaragua, and then sure, you know they are introducing some elements of what people fled from. As expected, President Nicolas Maduro's party has won parliamentary elections in Venezuela, consolidating his grip on power. But Castro continued to hold a tight grip on his people through restrictions on free speech and free press. He quieted the opposition with imprisonment. Nicaragua has become a police state. And for these relatives of opposition politicians who've been detained, the crackdown is complete. So at that point, you can expect those voters to say, no, no, I don't care about any issue. I don't care about who's being rude or who's lying. I just need to do whatever I can to prevent what happened in my country from happening here in my new country. So if that means electing Donald Trump, who has lied and insulted people and been a bad example for my children and, and you know, disrespectful, well, at least he's against those other people. And you can diminish that kind of thinking. You can 
You can call it ignorant, but this is the reality for many people. They lost everything in their countries. They are traumatized. They want to be safe. They want to continue having the opportunity to work. We've been speaking with the Honorable Carlos Curbelo, former two-term centrist congressman from South Florida and now a political analyst for NBC. One of the trigger points for this episode also came from Florida by way of a great PBS documentary, Latino Vote, Voices from the Battleground. In that film, the pastor, Dr. Gabriel Seguero, offered up not the usual red versus blue dichotomy of Hispanic immigrants, but a more purple, independent, issue-focused perspective. What are you going to do about health care? What are you going to do about criminal justice reform? What are you going to do about religious liberty? And what, you, and what are you going to do about life? And when you speak to those whole host of issues, no party has a, a monopoly. If I'm going to be honest, is we're politically homeless. We are politically homeless. And that's why so many of us, like me, are registered independent, looking for a platform that speaks to the priorities that are so close to home and that matter to our kids and our children and our grandchildren and our abuelitos and our abuelitas. We played that clip for our guest, Dr. Sharon Navarro of UT San Antonio, and asked if her research showed an inclination toward more independence and less loyal partisanship among Latinos in Texas and nationwide. Over half of Latinos identify as Democrat, and two out of five of Latinos lean independent within the Democratic Party. With respect to Republican Party, three in five Republicans lean independent. So there is that sector of the Latino population that is persuadable, given the right candidate and the right political positions. If we look at the younger generation of Latinos, one-third of Latinos aren't born in the United States, which means that there is no party loyalty ingrained in them yet. So they are persuadable. I would not say that they are homeless. Studies show that the independent voters within the respective parties will tend to back that respective party, but if they are persuaded by the candidates, they will cross party lines. In studies that I have done, even at the local level, if there is a co-ethnic candidate, meaning a candidate that has the same descriptors, meaning phenotype, speaks Spanish, has a Spanish name, within that same party, they will still cross party lines and vote for the candidate that speaks to their issues, regardless if this candidate looks like them. So traditionally, I hope it's fair to say there were some notable centrist Hispanic candidates on the national stage. Um, Now we have the runoff with uh, Henry Cuellar, who is, I think, the last perhaps pro-life Democrat in the congressional delegation. But recently, not so much. So is there, in your view, any Hispanic candidates out there now that maybe aren't so well-known, maybe at the local level, who are a little more centrist or less predictably partisan? I think the Republican Party has done a great job at mobilizing and recruitment at the local level, even at school board elections. And you can see the same effect occurring with Democratic Party. So 
even at the most basic levels, you can see party politics and partisanship run into the mix. So it's hard to find a centrist person when you are constantly bombarded by hyper-partisan politics. Yeah, now it seems like a little bit ironic, if not counterintuitive, that at the same time that some segment of Hispanic voters are clearly moving Republican, there are still Republicans fear-mongering about losing the majority to Hispanic voters, such as your lieutenant governor. So has anyone on the Republican Party pointed out that contradiction that you know of? No. I think there is the sense of loss of control and whatever you can do to maintain it and control it is what has to be done. Fair enough. Well, if you don't mind, let's pivot a bit and discuss the diversity of Hispanic viewpoints. And maybe that's been with us all along and it's just being discovered now. But it's the theme of a 2022 Atlantic Magazine article by an upcoming guest here, Dr. Geraldo Cadava at Northwestern. But tell us about that diversity within Southern Texas. Right. So the primary constituency is of Mexican-American descent, but you do have smaller pockets of other uh, Central Americans making it across uh, the border. So when we look at the Hispanic voting myth, you have to take into a much more complex view. The generational differences, the educational differences, whether or not children are born in uh, Mexico or in Central America or they're born here, you also have to look at migration patterns, first immigration generation versus second and third. The farther away you are in generations, the least likely you are to see issues like immigration important. So understanding the Hispanic vote is complex, and there are a lot of cultural nuances that candidates have to take into view when they try to mobilize the base and bring them out. And it kind of uh, reminds us of a political article. Maybe you saw a headline soon after the primaries, uh, Hispanic women emerge as big winners in Texas GOP primary. And I think as many as eight Latinos, including six women, could be Republican nominees. So was that a surprise to you that that many Hispanic candidates would do that well? No, uh, the Republican Party has for years been closing the gap uh, between Latino and Democratic voters. So when you look at the offices that they're placing, simple locations of offices, they're now being located in heavily uh, Latino districts, which you hadn't seen before. You didn't see that a decade ago. You don't see that from the Democratic Party. So to some extent, for these candidates to embrace the Republican Party, they have to filter out a lot of extreme rhetoric on the far right wing, you know, a lot of kind of, you know, white supremacist-like rhetoric. Do you find that people in South Texas kind of ignore national politics and focus more on local issues and kind of filter out that national extreme polarization? Yes, we saw that take place with Donald Trump. Latinos were aware of his immigration stance, the way he portrayed immigrants or some Hispanics, but they understood the economic side of the Republican Party. They were hurting from the COVID pandemic shutdowns. 
And when you talk about Latinos in South Texas, Rio Grande Valley, along the Texas-Mexico border, the federal government is one of the largest recruiters uh, in that area. A lot of uh, Latinos are employed by Border Patrol, customs agents. And so when you hear the opposite political party talk about abolishing the Border Patrol, you're talking about their uh, livelihoods. Inevitably, Latinos have a husband, a brother, uh, uncle, a grandson that is employed in law enforcement. And to them, that is an everyday reality. So the Republican Party, aside from all their extreme rhetoric, talks about the bread and butter issues that matter more to Latinos. And they're able to filter through those types of discussions. Bread and butter issues at a time of high inflation, a war in Europe, and continuing COVID concerns, those bread and butter issues remain crucial to capturing swing voters nationwide, Hispanics among them. Dr. Henry Cisneros has been a major player and insightful observer of politics for decades. I asked him the same questions about the natural independence of Hispanic voters in the current election cycle, and also whether economic concerns are now threatening their traditional ties to the Democratic Party. Well, traditionally in Texas, up to about 75 to 80 percent of Hispanics have thought of themselves as Democrats. And principally, it has been driven by the aspirational dimension of Latino politics, which is people want to advance and Democrats have been the party that have been supportive of improvements in education, bilingual education, scholarships and financing for education, job training, the opportunity to create affirmative action type programs that open the door within the workplace, small business programs, and a range of things that are on this aspirational track, this ladder, if you will, of upward mobility. Republicans in many instances have opposed those things, and therefore Latinos have traditionally gravitated to the Democratic Party. We have seen that begin to break down, and I suspect it will break down even further. In the last election, some of the poorest areas of Texas, which had been the bluest areas of Texas, were actually carried by President Trump in this last election. And the question is, well, why? Well, in part, many of them are evangelical, and that put them on a certain place with respect to the right to life versus choice questions. Also, they live in rural areas, and they work, they use guns, and they were really nervous about the Democratic positions, which seemed to be take away people's guns. We know that's not the case, but that's the way they were pitched and pursued. They are also people who run small businesses and were worried about the impact of regulation on small business. The Republicans have made a point of being the party of business. Now, politics is a marketplace of ideas. And when Democrats can figure out that things that might work from a left point of view in New York don't work in rural Texas, then they will make, you know, accommodations on the spectrum of ideas that bring Latinos back. But if they don't, then they do risk losing some major portions of the population. So there's a lot of issues in play and a lot of things that Democrats ought to be aware of and not take this population for granted and begin to fashion the kind of uh, more centrist posture 
that can hold on to this population, even as we're focusing on the traditional things that have won Latinos. And that is a recognition that we ought to start with pre-K education and move right through the schools and develop the training and create the business opportunities and the contracting choices, et cetera, that make it possible for Latinos to, poor Latinos, to aspire to the middle class. That's always been the way we've distinguished ourselves and I think the way we can going forward. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned more centrist candidates. I'm not sure we've seen that uh, in primaries so far in the recent Texas primary. Well, we have a primary right now in Texas that captures it, and that is the uh, the campaign between the incumbent, Henry Cuellar, and his uh, opponent, a woman who shares my last name, no relation, named Jessica Cisneros. And she has the endorsement of AOC and the traditional Democratic left, and he has been a, uh, a major uh, center to slightly right ally of Nancy Pelosi on key votes needed in the Congress, and they're in a runoff. They, they came within a few thousand votes of each other in the primary. So there's a, a classic kind of choice and indication of where the Latino community, in the Democratic primary at least, will be. Yeah, that is certainly an interesting race. We've had a couple of guests speak to this kind of polarity that exists between rhetoric on the far left and on the far right, and the problem of far left rhetoric possibly alienating swing voters like many Hispanics. I do think that frequently we pursue uh, some idea that's emerged from some academic or other place that assumes that everyone automatically has to adopt it because uh, that defines whether we're left of center or not. And it the world really doesn't work that way. So I think that progressives, people to the left, Democrats generally, would do well to try to put yourself in other people's shoes who are striving to create a better life for their families, who want the best possible education for their children in basic ways and in traditional ways with respect to views about the country and patriotism, for example, and who want to create uh, the best working environment possible and make an income and buy a home. And that's still where the majority of America is. And if we can relate to those realities as a party, then we have something to say to people. But pursuing the latest cliche, the latest fashionable uh, arguments, that probably isn't how you build a consensus, a broad-based party. Dr. Henry Cisneros there, former four-term mayor of San Antonio and former president of Univision, the largest Spanish-language media company in the U.S. He's echoing a point made earlier by Carlos Cabello in Miami and Dr. Sharon Navarro of UT San Antonio about the importance of plain old bread-and-butter issues to so many Hispanic American voters and families in the current economy. That's important to bear in mind throughout this 2022 election cycle, House and Senate leadership are at stake, and these more independent, persuadable Hispanic voters will definitely be a factor in that outcome and for many elections to come. We have another episode coming up soon in the series on Hispanic swing voters. 
And that episode will feature Northwestern University historian and frequent New York Times and Atlantic contributor, Geraldo Cadava. One of his Atlantic articles is entitled, There's No Such Thing as the Latino Vote, and subtitled, Why Can't America See That? And so I think what needs to happen is just a a fundamental rethinking of how parties and campaigns approach Latinos and talk to Latinos in a way that really takes seriously their political positions and what they say they believe about any number of issues from home ownership to immigration to jobs to education. Also coming up in our series on state-level polarization, we'll speak with three experts on Georgia politics, very purple, tightly contested elections, yet still polarized along racial lines and the urban-rural divide. We'll speak with Ken Lawler of Fair Districts GA. And one of the trends that we see in Georgia from this last map and go-round, in all three maps, congressional, state house, state senate, is we've lost competitiveness. We have almost no competitive districts where we should have some, right? Dr. Adrian Jones of Morehouse College. And I also think, you know, having these high stakes races at the top of the ballot is important, right? Because it brings people out, gets them interested. But I still think that as Americans, we have a lot more work to do in terms of learning our down ballot races. Like who is running for judge? Who is running for public service commissioner? Who is running for some of these offices that have a large impact on people's everyday lives? And Dr. Charles Bullock from the University of Georgia. Brad Raffensperger, the incumbent Secretary of State, has been cussed by Trump just as Brian Kemp has. And again, Trump incorrectly challenges or charges Raffensperger with not maintaining safe elections, allowing the election to be stolen. So he's now paying the price for this and that Trump has endorsed Jody Heiss, who's currently a member of Congress, has endorsed Heiss to take on Raffensperger. So that's going to be another hot contest here. Please join us on both of these important topics. No state has been more pivotal in recent elections than Georgia, and no group has been more pivotal in recent elections than Hispanic swing voters. This is Robert Pease for the Purple Principle team. We'd really appreciate if you could share us with a friend or a colleague, connect via social media, and support us on Apple subscriptions or Patreon. Original music composed and created by Ryan Adair Rooney, The Purple Principle is a Fluent Knowledge production.